Growing up as a rock fan in Canada was a win-win situation. Being in such close proximity to America, we were, of course, bombarded by American pop culture. Everything America consumed, we consumed. After all, we were living upstairs from them. But on top of that, we also had our homegrown crop of bands to binge and purge on. During the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we as Canadians got to feast on a parade of bands that many others didn't get to hear. Santers, Chilliwack, The Headpins, April Wine, Superconductor, FM, Nash the Slash, Shotmaker, Max Webster, Harlequin, Honeymoon Suite, Big Wreck, Slow Lores, Killer Dwarves, No Mind, Kittens, National Velvet, The Forgotten Rebels, The Odds, Bliss, Flight Camp, Chore, The Mance, The Leather Uppers, The Stinkies, Streetheart, Platinum Blonde, Tricky Woo, Sword, War Pig, Rough Trade, Teenage Head, The Pursuit of Happiness, Gowan, Bionic, Cyanospheric, Change of Heart, Blue Rodeo, Sons of Freedom, Gatto, and about 500 more bands that I'm criminally forgetting. The point is, if you were a music fan, being situated in a place like Toronto, like I was growing up, was the best vantage point to feast on rock music. It was a dim sum, tapas, country-style buffet of audible delights. Now, out of some of those bands, a few got to squeak out into America and even internationally. And only a few because we all know them. Rush, Triumph, Brian Adams, The Cowboy Junkies, and, and Loverboy. More Canadian bands gained international renown through the world of metal, punk rock, and hard rock like Voivod, DOA, Anvil, Annihilator, No Means No, Exciter, Sacrifice, Razor, but only one person stood on her own, on her namesake, and represented Canada internationally in the hard rock realm, and that was Lee Aaron. To me, Lee Aaron's voice represents an entire genre of hard rock. It really encapsulated the moment, too. Songs like What You Do To My Body, Hands On, Sweet Talk, and of course her signature song, Metal Queen, the song that brought her international success and notoriety, were, in my opinion, worthy representatives of Canada on the international stage. As a singer myself, I admire her voice. It's strong, gruff, it's sweet, angelic, and dirty all at the same time. It's no wonder people stopped and stared and listened when she first broke out onto the scene. When I look back, I realize how strong an impression Lee Aaron made on my psyche. Of course, every heavy metal hard rock kid had a crush on her, and I must admit this off the top, but her performance videos for What You Do To My Body and Hands On were two videos, I think, of every time we do a performance-led music video of our own, or we do a photo shoot against a white backdrop. The video for Sweet Talk made me think of when you play nightclubs, that's the kind of stage you play and audience you play for. Of course, when I eventually started to play clubs myself, I realized the stage is half a foot off the ground and there will be four people at your first 50 gigs. And something I've never admitted publicly, but I think now's the best time to do so. I have spent more than one time singing the chorus for barely holding on in the shower, or should I say trying to sing the chorus but failing miserably. 
Now, I've been playing rock music for a minute or two, and I've been in heavy situations with heavy people. Honestly, sometimes I'm awestruck, but a lot of the time, I'm not that much anymore. After seeing behind the scenes what goes on behind closed doors, the high opinion I had for many a band has slightly dimmed over the years. But you cannot believe how excited, how awestruck, how starstruck I was to meet Lee Aaron two years ago at the Skogs Royet Festival in Sweden. I was also blown away when she told me she was a fan of our music too. JC even made fun of me that day and filmed me filming Lee Aaron playing live from the side of the stage. I was pretty stoked that day. I had her guitarist Sean Kelly on a few weeks back, but didn't think to get Lee. But then I just reached out to her because every working musician is home due to COVID. And I was so thankful, but really nervous when she agreed to do this. Lee Aaron is a national treasure. She still has the voice of the quintessential rocker. I'm so glad she's still making rock records. And the world of hard rock is better for it, too. COVID-19 sucks, but if there's anything positive to take away from all this bullshit, it's that I was able to talk to Lee Aaron for a bit of time for the podcast, and this is the proof. I hope you enjoy it because the one and only Lee Aaron is on the podcast. Wow. I can't believe I just said that. Yes. And it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. Nick Lennon, get his Tango's go out to love for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Give me in from fuck down. Stop playing hang down, down. The Danko Jones podcast is simply superb. Splendidly fine. Wonderfully wild. Very divine. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts now! Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Oh my gosh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Eureka, okay. Uh, Well, it's great to talk to you again. I mean, this is fantastic. I've been waiting since I got the confirmation that we're going to be chatting. I've been, I've been highly anticipating this. So is this okay. great? Yeah. So I guess we haven't seen each other in a couple of years since we played in Sweden. That's right. That was, as I was talking to Sean, it was, uh, I mean, I find that I run into more Canadians abroad than at home, or, or at least, I mean, bands, uh, musicians abroad than at home. And uh, I've never, I'd never, we'd never met before, and it just figures we'd meet in Sweden. In Sweden, <laughs> of all places. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm such an old, old, old time fan, like from back in the day, that I think the guys were um, making fun of me because I was so excited to hopefully meet you guys that day. And it was great to meet you guys, and, and uh, you guys put on a great set. I'd never met Sean either. And people have been telling me, and I guess they've been telling him for years, that assuming we know each other. So it was nice to meet Sean. Um, And it was wonderful to meet you, and you guys put on a great set. And when I, you know, reached out to Sean to have him on the podcast, I was thinking, maybe I can get Lee Aaron on. (laughs) Because everyone's at home. 
So it's just great to have you on and talk to you. Oh, no, I, I'm super excited, super happy to talk to you. I read your book a couple of years ago, and I just I picked it up again last night, and I was leafing through it going, I, yeah, i got to remember some of the stuff you'd written about g- growing up in Scarborough and how you don't like tomatoes on your hamburgers <laughs> and shit like that, right? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you, you went through it, and it, maybe it, it helped you on, on uh, while you're traveling and waiting at some airport gate or something. Well, what I loved it, what I really liked about your book is it years ago, um, I, did, I haven't really been doing it lately because nowadays the way social media works, it's people seem to want all their, their information in soundbite formula. But I used to write um, regular blogs, which are all available somewhere on my website. I know my web guys got them up there, but and they're each, they're very much like what you've done in your book, which is sort of like these random thoughts that you've put into many chapters, right? Right, yeah, that's of, it, exactly. Of, of things I'm just pontificating about that I have an opinion on, right? Um, so, yeah, I, can, I, can, I could really relate to that. But I do disagree with you. I do like tomatoes on my hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's great, that's great. I'm not uh, a tomato hater. <laughs> Um, I love ketchup. Love ketchup. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get. A, I have a fourteen-year-old son, and I seriously, I always say to him like, "You hate." He hates vegetables, and I'm like, "How are you still alive?" You know. <laughs> I really wish that ketchup could be officially declared a vegetable, but it can't. So. Right. Right. <laughs> anyway. Well, now that you know we're we're all at home, uh, all the bands are at home and stuff. Um, I've been, you know, I follow you on Instagram and I noticed that you guys are making a record. We are. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, we had written the songs, uh, for that album. It it was a a really, I'll, I'll start from the very beginning. My idea for this new album was rather than sending files back and forth, because Sean's located in Toronto, obviously, and myself and John and Dave are all out in the Vancouver area, although we're still about, uh, you know, John and John's my husband, but Dave and I live about an hour apart. Um, you know, just getting us all in the same room to be creative is sometimes a challenge, because when we do connect, it's usually for touring, right? Right. And I said, you know, how about after we do the show, you just fly up to Vancouver and we spend two or three days just like, Everybody brings their, like, three or four A-game ideas, and we just get together in a room and try to create. So that was my idea behind making this record that we're working on presently, because um, that's the way we used to do it when we were in high school. We'd just get together in a room and have a good laugh and have fun and write songs. And, and so we really seriously wrote this album in about two or three days, Um the lyrics weren't completely refined, but it was very exciting the way the whole process came together for doing this album. And we were scheduled to record right in the middle of March of this year. And we all know what happened in the middle of March this year. Within that one week period between like March 10th and March 17th, the whole COVID thing exploded out of control. And uh, not only were things changing daily, but things were literally, literally changing hourly. So we were, um, we were in Calgary, believe it or not, to do a corporate show, which I never do. But it was just this fluky show we'd got scheduled to do for, you know, tons of money for this, to play for this corporation. 
And they had just canceled gatherings of 250 people or more the day before. So friends of ours got stuck in Toronto at Casino Rama and they couldn't play because they had flown in a day early and they canceled all gatherings. But the gathering we were about to do was 100 people. So we were able to play, although I I was like, don't, no meet and greet, no nothing. We, We were like, I took my little alcohol sprayer on the airplane. I was sanitizing the plane when we flew back to Vancouver. Right. And we went into the studio, but it was just the weirdest studio studio experience because, again, things were getting so weird with COVID. Um, I mean, Sean's wife was calling him and saying, I want you to come home. Things are getting so weird. Your son is sick. And so Sean ended up flying home a day early. But to make a long story short, we did manage to just, barely get our bed tracks constructed okay and um and uh then after this happened i you know i just brought the tracks back to the house and and i've just been we've just been plugging away working on our record at home thankfully we're all set up with you know professional quality home studios but uh it's been fun it's been fun it's been nice to have a project (laughs) so i mean it sounds like you guys work pretty fast as a unit um so if it was if all the bed tracks were kind of done around March and and we're in August now, have you been working on like lyrics and melodies for this whole time? No, the lyrics and melodies were pretty much done. Um, a few of us have um, alternate revenue streams as well. Like uh, three of us in the band are teachers, and uh, Dave Reimer. As you, I don't know if you know, my my bassist Dave Reimer has a company called Reimer Guitars. He uh, he builds custom, beautiful, beautiful custom basses and guitars. Oh. Um, so we sort of all have these sort of side things going on. Um, not that it takes away from music. Um, we're, we're very fortunate we have side things going on that enable us to have other revenue streams and still be very creative. But, you know, so we've all, we all sort of were waiting for the whole school scene to, to wind down. And, right. um, um, so in the meantime, I, I uh, just started plugging away recording vocal tracks, got them all done. And um, when COVID got to a place where we kind of knew what we needed to do to all stay safe, then Dave Reimer started coming over to my studio like once a week. He's coming Thursday of this week, and we'll be finishing up all the background vocals. And, you know, and we've just been reviewing the tracks and deciding what else we want on them, like... I think we're going to add some some Hammond and Mellotron and a few things on some of the tracks and and Cowbell, of course. <laughs> of course, I mean it, it can't be rock. There's no rock without a Cowbell. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, and just you know, now that this has all happened, we just haven't really been in a gigantic rush to get things done and to get it out there because um, we've got lots of infinite time to plan now. And um, and we've also been interviewing some mixers for the album because uh, I'm kind of wanting to go in a bit of a different direction. Well, not a not a completely different direction, but a little bit more of a an old school direction with this album in terms of mixes. We want it to sound um, uh, clean, but not overly produced. Not um, kind of like a '70s vibe. Mm-hmm. A lot of the uh, a lot of the mixes these days that you hear of anything, um, like my son is a huge Green Day fan. I love Green Day too, but their new album just to me sounds very digital, mm-hmm. very processed. All the vocals have gone through 
you know, pitch correction. And we're trying to avoid some of those modern trappings and keep it um, a bit more old school sounding, if that makes sense. So we've just been interviewing some mixers to see who's going to be the best guy right. for this album. And what I noticed is you're working on this album. The last album, uh, Diamond Baby Blues, was 2018. It seems like you guys uh, are, are, are chucking them out just like we are every two years almost uh, now. Uh, how does that feel? Like, does it feel, you know, every, the cycle has ended and now it's time to start after about a year and a half or a year? Like, that's, that's kind of the, the, the conveyor belt our band has been on for like over a decade if not more. Well, I always, I took about a decade off. I don't know if you're aware of that. I, yeah. I had children in 2004 and 2006. I had my daughter and then uh, and our son. And um, <clears throat> it's funny because at that time when I had the kids, I had this crazy, crazy idea in my head that I was just going to like, yeah, you know, we're just going to have a baby and then we'll just make the baby fit into our lifestyle and I'll just put her in a car seat and I can probably just take her on the road and take her on a tour bus. <laughs> and then I, we ended up with this baby that like literally screamed in her car seat all the way to Safeway. And I was like, Oh, I was, I was a nervous wreck. Like the first year after we had her, because it's not what you think. It's just like parenthood completely turns your life upside down. I mean, in the very best way possible. Don't don't please don't misunderstand. I would never change anything, but it it really blew apart some of these preconceptions that I had about how I was going to make the baby just work in my life and work for me, right? And it just, you know, um, it doesn't work that way. So I ended up taking about a decade off to raise our children when they were young because number one, it's the most important formative time in their life in terms of, you know, just emotional and brain development and all that stuff and it's I felt it was so important that I needed to just be a parent at that time so when I decided to start making records again I you know they were old enough that they I could take focused time away now because it, it it's a lot of focused intense um narcissistic and you know time when you are writing an album it's all mm -hmm. about what you know you have to like you know, I, I like shut the door and I'm like, don't come near me and bother me for mm -hmm. <laughs> hours because I'm in my artistic place, right? And so um, I always knew I was going to make another rock record. But yeah, I mean, it just we just ended up in a pattern of uh, we, we put out uh, Fire and Gasoline in 2016 and uh, toured. And then it just, it wasn't something really that I've is been preconceived that well, we're going to pump out an album every two years. It just... We just start getting creative again, and then it ends up happening. And actually, in between Diamond Baby Blues and uh, the new one we're working on, uh, we put out a live album, which was, oh. uh, I don't know if you were aware of that. We no. Put out, it's called Power Soul Rock and Roll Live in Germany. Uh, we recorded uh, we recorded the, the uh, Bang, Bang Your Head Festival, visually and audio in 2017 and we recorded another show um in a smaller venue in germany and uh we just ended up with these two superior quality you know live recordings and um started out that we thought we would put out a live album and then it sort of evolved into a dvd live cd package so we put that out uh lot um 2019 i think yeah 
September oh, wow. 2019. Yeah. Oh, so that just came out last year. Oh, okay. That's probably yeah. Maybe I was I just I, I I didn't catch it when it came out, and then COVID, as you know, just blew away everything. I wasn't even paying attention to anything. Don't uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, no worries. But that oh I oh that's great. Wow, you guys are really churning it out. I mean I I mean I admire bands who do that. I like that's what we do. Um, and it, it just, it, it feels like now I, I have to bring it up and I know you get asked this a lot. Um, but it feels like you serve, um, two sides. There's, there's obviously the hard rock side of you and then there's the jazz side of you. Um, but I want to know when I know that you still, you've got one foot in jazz and pop and one foot in hard rock, but Am I wrong in assuming that the 2011 Sweden rock appearance really got you back into hard rock in a big way? Hmm. I think, I, I wouldn't say it got me back into it in a huge way. I would say that, um, you know, it was an opportunity that presented itself I'd always wanted to go to Sweden and had not. There'd been various opportunities throughout my career, and for some reason, this or that or the other thing happened, and we ended up never making it there. Um, I think it was a bit of an eye-opener uh, for me in that I had no idea I actually had that many fans mm -hmm. in Sweden because right. we played Sweden rock, and it was fairly early in the day, and it was extremely well attended, and then afterward and they had to cut off the autograph line and the guy i mean he and i don't i please don't misunderstand i'm not saying this in a boastful way i don't mean it that way at all he just said oh I've, you know we've never just never had autograph an autograph line like this it's crazy and and they had to basically usher me out so they could bring another act in to the autograph booth and people were angry and upset and i That's it was just a bit of an eye opener yeah like for me to right. wow i I didn't really realize that I had so many ardent fans out there that are just waiting for, for me to make something new. Right. Um, again, my kids were still pretty little. Our kids were still pretty little at that point. So I didn't know that I was prepared to dedicate the amount of time needed to... It's like authoring a book when you write a record, right? right. It's takes quite a bit of intensive time. and um, But it got the wheels turning. And then um, I think the impetus really for doing it was two things sort of my kids being an age at which I felt I could take enough time away to make a record. And also, um, John, Sean Kelly joining the band in, uh, gosh, what year did he join the band? I guess it would be 2014 or 15 now. And, um, you know, for quite some time, I had been sort of looking for, um, since John Albany left the band in the 90s, to become a producer, move to Nashville and become a producer, because he was my my co-writer and my partner in crime for almost 12 years with Lee, the, er, the earlier Lee Aaron stuff. I had been sort of scoping out for a guitar player that would be the perfect person to be a band member. Um, and in the meantime, I'd used a few different guys. And um, Sean and I connected over his Metal on Ice project, which I'm sure you're familiar with the book that he wrote. Yes, and we talked we, about it. Yeah, and the subsequent um, concert and companion CD. And uh, him and I just, I don't know, we just hit it off, <laughs> you know, as 
human beings. We really got along well. And he said, if you ever need a sub on a Toronto show, you know, call me up. And so I did. And he played with the band and the, the, the four of us just connected in an unbelievable way, musically and personally. And it just became really evident that he should be in the band. And um, so he joined the band. And then we just started immediately talking about creating together. And uh, then... Yeah, we just lob ideas out all the time at each other, so that's it's just kind of how it works, right? And um, so he, yeah, that I think that's really what sort of got it going and what keeps it going is just the fact that now I've got a team of people around me where you know we've got, you know, myself, Dave, and Sean are all really experienced songwriters, and John, my husband, is. He's the musicologist of the band, and he's a great arranger. So we sort of have this um, dynamic team that um, just sort of keeps it going, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, no, it, it totally does. I mean, when I when when I saw you guys um, in Sweden two years ago, it, was, it seemed like you guys had been together for a long time, and it felt like a family unit. Maybe that's me just following you on Instagram, uh, but it seems like it's a real band. Um, but yeah, I was, I've, I've always been curious as to that because when I saw you appear at uh, Sweden Rock or when I heard that you had appeared in Sweden Rock, um, up to that point, I knew you were doing jazz. I'd even seen you on TV uh, singing jazz. And knowing you from Metal Queen and Body Rock, um, I just figured, oh, okay, she's done with us. Um, so when Sweden Rock came calling, sometimes these festivals uh, like to like to be the catalyst for, for people as well. I, I know that like in Hellfest in France, they have a way of getting all the ex-members of this one band on the same stage on the same day and seeing what happens. And sure enough, you know, someone will guest on someone's set and it just makes uh, the news and it makes for a better show. So I know that festivals like to act as catalysts now and almost as A&R people just trying to get you back into hard rock. So I was wondering if that was some somewhat of a catalyst for you when you did walk out and you saw like a throng in another country that you've never been to before just knowing all your music, if that was enough to go, holy cow, <laughs> I can just imagine the feeling. That, well, and that makes a lot of sense, and I and I do see that with festivals or festivals that will just ask a band to reunite, right? Right. For a yeah. Festival. Yeah. And it and it just ignites a new fire and a new passion to you know people go oh the band's united and then they start getting offers from other festivals. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I think it's you know so I do you know that's an interesting question that you would would posit that to me, but so I think it you know. Prior to doing Sweden Rock, I think it was 2000 and, you know, I think, is that, is that your dog or my dog? That's uh, my dog. <laughs> okay. He's really reactive. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's all, No, that's all right. It's usually my dogs that are causing the problem. They're like, oh no, it's the, it's an Amazon package arriving at the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. Anyway, but um, in 2000 and, oh gosh, what would it have been, six or seven, I got asked to play 
a giant rock festival in Thunder Bay. And I, my son was like, I don't even think he was a year old at that point. Right. Um, and I was a bit reluctant to do it because, I don't know, like I just, I had babies at home, right? And, um, but it was an opportunity to play with heart. <laughs> so I, they were like, I think more than, um, I mean, I have a lot of female influences, in, but in terms of like, pure, just straight up rock chicks. Nan and Anna Nancy Wilson, as a teenager for me, were, were my number one inspirations. They were, they were rock chicks that played their own instruments, wrote their own songs, that didn't trade on their sexuality. And they were just super inspiring to me. So when I had an opportunity to play with heart, I couldn't say no. Right. And that actually got me onto a rock and roll stage when my son was one years old. And I think that that was a little bit of a catalyst and i was still doing i was still doing jazz at that time um so a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that i still did do the odd rock show while i was singing jazz i never gave up either or completely <laughs> like people um and you know the other thing that kind of bothers me is that i did you know i i did sing jazz for quite a while and um and I still would if, you know, I, the, the odd time someone will approach me with a corporate offer to go, you know, they just want me to step on stage and do the Great American Songbook. And right. uh, I'm open to that idea. It's, you know, and again, don't misunderstand, I'm not comparing myself to Robert Plant, but, <clears throat> you know, because he's infinitely, you know, he's all one of my idols, idols but... Um, you know, he's done a lot of meander, meandering around, you know, stylistically and career-wise. And I, I just don't think that you need, you have, you, you either live in one camp or the other. I mean, <clears throat> I know a lot of <clears throat> diehard rock fans thought I was, you know, defecting from the rock world and, um, <clears throat> you know, abandoning them as their rock queen. And it was really never about that. It was just really more about just musical growth and exploration when i did jazz right right yeah no i i, I have I, I i was always i'm i was always just curious i mean uh, musicians uh, more than sometimes more than the audience are, are such wide listeners of music i mean we'll listen to everything just because that's why we're in it so you getting into jazz or hard rock or whatever um i knew that you know that's just probably been a part of you all this time and you're just like letting everyone else know um but yeah it is it is interesting i mean you're right the the hard rock camp is uh i don't know there <laughs> yeah if you if you leave then there's questions raised if you do something different questions are raised all the time um but uh i just had to ask because when i saw you at sweden rock i was like oh man that's great you know like ah <laughs> She's back, <laughs> you know, like kind of thing. Okay. But, uh, no, and I get that. <clears throat> but yeah. I mean, some of my biggest influences, even in rock, were people like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Nina Simone. Right. right you know, and right. the roots of rock and roll. I mean, Zeppelin stole from all these guys, like, mm -hmm. you know, Chuck Berry and Howlin' Wolf, and the roots of rock and roll come from jazz and blues. It's it's not rocket science. Yo, a, <laughs> so, a, absolutely, you know, absolutely. I think you have to give these artists credit, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to know, uh, you're originally from Brampton. 
You're on the Walk of Fame in Brampton, Brampton, Ontario. Um, Correct. But you live out on the West Coast. I've, I'm born and raised, always lived in Toronto. Nothing against West Coasters. Uh, but uh, I know you, in the 90s, you made albums with uh, Sons of Freedom. Um, what, what, what drew you out to the West Coast? Was it working with those guys and, and being in a band with those guys, making records with them and just going, wow, the weather's way better here <laughs> or something? Like, because you are from Brampton. Because like, when, when we were setting up the, the, uh, the chat, I still, in my head, I thought you were in the Toronto area. And then uh, I realized, oh, she's three hours behind. So that made me think, yeah, how did you make it out there? <laughs> Thanks. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and I and thank you that you've done some research, too, because sometimes I talk to people and I just get asked the most inane questions, like, <laughs> you know, because they haven't really <clears throat> done any, any historical research. So... Um, how did I end up on the West Coast? Well, I was, I was born in Belleville, Ontario. I lived and grew up in Winnipeg when I was a young girl. Um, interestingly enough, we don't have enough time to talk about it, but ha I had some, some sort of, you know, uh, six degrees of separation connection from like Burton Cummings and the Guess Who there as well. Then when I was um, about 10, 10 years old, I moved to the Brampton area and I grew up and went to high school there. And um, then I lived in Toronto. And then um, <clears throat> what happened in 1994 is I was making the Emotional Rain record. And at that time, I'd written most of that record with John Albany. But he was making a lot of noises about wanting to leave the band and move to Nashville and be a producer. So at that point, I brought out, <clears throat> and I was looking to make an album. I loved 90s music, by the way. Like, I just, I loved the whole grunge scene and didn't see any reason why I couldn't incorporate some of that sound into my own sound to make a more modern, modern sounding record. So I loved the band, Sons of Freedom, who were Canadian guys from the West Coast, and I brought them out to play on the Emotional Rain album, the rhythm section, Don Short and Don Bins. And I brought up um, a couple guitar players. I hired Knox Chandler from the Psychedelic Furs and Reeves Gabrels from uh, David Bowie's Tin Machine and brought those guys up to play on my record because <clears throat> I wanted to make a more modern-sounding record. And we did. We made this, um, this, this great album. And um, then I continued that work with the guys in Sons of Freedom um, I wrote another album with them called Too Precious. I don't know if you're familiar, aware of that. Yep. And at that time, um, we had hired a promotions guy named Bobby Gale, who recently passed away. Very sad. But anyway, we'd hired him, and he was so excited to promote this record. But he kept saying to me, perception is everything. We don't want to tell them it's, Lee, it's, a, it's a Lee Aaron album. We want to let the stations, I'm just going to take it in and let them hear it and get them agree to go on it before I tell them who the members are. So we had, like, you remember CFNY, of course, mm -hmm. in Toronto, yeah. Yeah. set to go on the album. They loved, we had this, this first single was a song called Super Bitch, and it was, uh, was a, the coolest tune. But when he, he had them set to play this and put it into heavy rotation, and when they found out that it was the Sons of Freedom with Lee Aaron, they retracted their 
agreement to go on the album because my name to them was associated with the old school the old school of rock it wasn't associated with the new school which was their nirvana nirvanas and the sound gardens and the you know the 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 pixies and the new school of rock and it was just such a disappointment to me uh-huh. and so disheartening to me yeah. because artistically <clears throat> i felt that album was some one of the strongest things i did but it died a slow and miserable death because it again perception is everything and we just i just it was just so hard to get the media interested in a new learn album at that time and that was kind of my impetus to sell all my stuff and pack up my guitar and just move to Vancouver because I just wanted to make a fresh start. I sort of felt at that time as long as I stayed in Toronto I would never change right. the perceptions that the Toronto media had of me mm-hmm. of just being the um that I would live and die the metal queen. Right. And I know that disappointed quite a few fans, but I really felt, and that was part of my impetus as well, for uh, deciding to make a shift and sing jazz for a while. I didn't, hell, I did an opera. I was part of a modern Baroque opera production out here on the West Coast. Right. Because I just, it was part of it was proving to, you know, the industry, but also to myself that I wasn't just this one-dimensional rock chick, that I could step outside of that realm and do other things. I really wanted to be appreciated for being more than just a rock chick, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I understand. And, um, you know, and I've, I've, I've produced, like, my last five albums, and I've been involved in the production of all of them, but I've never, you know, people never ask me questions about that. <laughs> you know? It's right. Just, does that make sense? And that, that's how I ended up out here, and then I ended up meeting my husband, and then I just stayed out here. But I still love Toronto. Don't get me wrong. I'm still a Toronto girl at heart. Yeah, because, you know, when I, I, before, I, before I got into a band, I, I wanted to, you know, one day I'm going to play the Toronto nightclubs and I'm going to hang out with, and then you always, your band from Body Rock, I'm going to hang out with all those guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been like, you know, when I, when I think of, you know, going downtown to Toronto and the Toronto nightclub scene, your your videos from Body Rock. I'm gonna hang out with all those people. <laughs> so um, yeah, when I found out that you would move to the and maybe I knew that before, but uh, I don't know. You're always gonna be from the Toronto area for me. So setting up the the chat, I was like, oh yeah, she, I can, yeah, I guess she's out in the West Coast there. So yeah, I just wanted to know how that ended up, you know, because from Brampton to uh, British Columbia. Uh, interesting. That's that's an interesting thing. And also, if, am I right? Sons of Freedom were from Vancouver, right? I, I thought they were a West Coast band. Yeah, they they are. They so, were and they are. Yeah. So, so is that is that like also what what helped you decide that's the place because you were already working with West Coast Vancouver people? Well, yeah, they'd become good friends, right. and they were and they lived out here and. Uh, they were always trying to entice me. They, oh, come on out here, we'll write a record. Right. And I was like, and in fact, actually, that was my first experience um, in these guys. The way they wrote was, they had been in a band since high school. They just had this, like, dingy little rehearsal space underneath an apartment building in this, 
this concrete room off a parking lot that had no ventilation and no windows. And they had this rehearsal space for years and they were like, yeah, you just come down there and we just start jamming and then you walk up to the mic and sing. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'd never done it that way before. I'd always done, you know, just, you know, I don't know. I just re done a different process for writing. And um, right. so what I loved about that process was that it was just really in the moment right uh, you, you know you just you just walk up and sing the first thing that pops into your head and and that's what gave me the idea for this new album that we're working on right now of bringing sean back out to vancouver and us getting together and just jamming out some ideas and and it, it, ironically enough some of those first things that i just walked up to the mic and sang i ended up keeping because i think sometimes you're like your first sparkle of inspiration is something that you do you you can't recreate, and then you start overthinking things. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so I, I wanted to capture some of that with the new the new album, um, and, and you know even when Sean and I had written some songs in the past for like say the Fire and Gasoline record, he sent me out a track, and what I will sometimes do is just turn a mic on in my recording studio and just sing gibberish. And then sometimes I go back and I go, ooh, but that line of gibberish is actually really cool. I think I'll keep it. Right. And I'll write a song around that, right? So, um, yeah, I don't know. Just talking about the creative process here. So. Oh, absolutely. I find um, I do that. We do that when we play and write songs as well in, our, in a rehearsal space, much like how you described the Sons of Freedom and uh, space. And then um, I noticed that when it's time to put a guitar solo in, because I'm not a guitarist, uh, you know, a shredder, um, usually the first thing that I come up with is ends up being the nub of what makes the album. Um, on the very first time we run through it, that ends up being pretty much the, the template for, you know, what eventually makes the album. So I'm all for just doing it on the spot, spontaneous bursts of creativity right on the spot usually are the best ones i'd say 75 percent of the time for me at least you know um and then well, we yeah, yeah i'm very much like even in the studio like if we get beyond three or four takes with a bed track i'm like you know what we're overthinking this now and let's just leave it and go move on to something else and come back quite often you can't capture that initial energy right again no, no i i i 100 agree with you and i and hey Brother, I'm with you on that. Not a great guitar. I'm a I'm a I, I'm a self-professed complete hack guitar player. <laughs> it's like I uh, I have a special tuning, so I can. It makes it easier for me. But I have good rhythm, right? So I can provide rhythm guitar, no problem on stage. But I'm a hack. I always say to Sean, if you want me to play a guitar solo, it's going to be the Neil Young guitar right. solo. I can play one or two notes, but that's right. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Neil is, yeah, Neil is an inspiration. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, I think Sean, Sean said it best, I think, when we chatted. He's, uh, as a singer, I'm a great guitar player, and I think I'm the reverse. As a, as a guitar player, I'm a great singer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, like, it, I mean, I, I, I started off saying, like, you seem to be churning it out I mean, all these rock records, and it seems like you've got some a really good thing going with with Sean and the band and everything. And I mean, once this pandemic COVID thing has settled down, um, 
hopefully we'll be able to all go out and play more shows uh, or a show. That would be fantastic. Um, but it, it, it's really inspiring watching you on Instagram uh, make this record. And you're also part of the reason that we had a, a, a little bit of a, a hiccup in the beginning was you've been doing these um, stay home like Zoom videos uh, of the band playing some of the hits, like What You Do To My Body was the latest one or the only one that I've seen. Um, or do you guys plan on doing more of those? Yes. Um, so the first one we did, if actually if you go to my website, I think it's, I think it's probably not on the homepage, but I think if you scroll down through news or my Facebook feed, it might be, it's there. We did Diamond Baby was the first one we did. Oh, I saw that too. Yeah, I saw that one too. Yeah. What You Do To My Body. And just so you understand, it's, it's actually not as easy as you think. People think you just all jump on Zoom and you just go for it and you just do it. But it's not as easy as that, really. The, the lag time prevents us all from getting on in real time and doing it. Um, people think that it is, but it isn't. Um, so what we end up doing is um, Sean will just record a video and an audio track simultaneously to his DAW, Digital right. Audio Workstation, and then he sends it to our video author. He sends the track to me. I drag it into my digital audio workstation, and then I simultaneously record the vocal and a live uh, recording of my voice at the same time. And one by one, we each do that. We send it all to our video author, and then he just pieces it together. So it is a live performance. It's just not in real. It's not all of us in the same room at the same time. Right, right. Um and yes, we are. We actually have one coming soon. We decided this time we're going to do a cover. And uh, we're doing a version. We're doing Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Everyday People. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. So we figured it was pretty timely with all the, uh, the stuff going on. Yeah. Crazy. Not only is COVID, but the whole racial thing is, you know, mm. come to the forefront of our consciousness again. And, uh, you know, we just thought it was a great tune it's one of my longtime favorites and i got my kids to sing on it so i'm so excited <laughs> i was going to ask you about that uh because uh you you've mentioned your kids being into your your sons into uh, green day how do they feel about uh all your all your records and the different periods do they follow you or are they just like oh whatever it's mom oh whatever it's mom really <laughs> <laughs> how, 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 have they seen? Like, sorry. Go no. Go ahead. I mean, have they seen you like in front of like a throng and just going, "Holy cow, she she makes my sandwiches," or you know, like, have they seen that where you're just like, "Wow," you know? Completely. Um, as they've gotten older, we've tried to bring them to more and more shows when we can. Uh, our daughter is uh, a wonderful singer and actress. She's really deeply involved in. A variety of musical theater companies through school and privately, locally, and uh, our son. You know, it drives me crazy because he's he's got talent oozing out of his baby finger, but he's just lazy and he doesn't really care to learn an instrument. And unfortunately, the draw of video game culture, you know, has just it's really hard. He's got a VR headset, so he's down there, you know, <laughs> doing virtual reality stuff. 
But um, my my husband's given him a few drum lessons, and he's quite good. He catches on quite quickly. And I I, I said to him a few days ago, I'm like, come on, you got to just do some like low sly vocals on part of this recording for me. <laughs> and he really, really resisted it. He did not want to do it. And he said, okay, mom, I'll listen to the song and I'll learn it and I'll try and help you. And he did. He did it like he did it in a couple takes. I'm like, dude, like you're talented. Why are you so reluctant? I think he's probably just going to like decide he wants to be in a rock band when he's like 18 and suddenly be great. I think that's just what he's going to do. And he <laughs> says to me the other day, he goes, mom, you know, like your music's okay, but Green Day's better. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Fair right. enough. And, um, and he's, but he says to me the other day, he comes to me, he goes, hey, mom, mom, you know, you got like almost a million spot of followers on Spotify. And he was fairly impressed by that. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> he goes, I think he was surprised to see that other people listen to his mother's music. Right. And um, I know one time we, uh, we, we, we had, we, we, we took them to a show and, um, they were more fascinated by the people that loved us and were listening to the music and the people that came to the merchandise table to buy merch and get autographs. They, were, they seemed more fascinated by the people that were in love with their parents' music mm -hmm. than the actual music itself, if that makes any sense. It makes and total they, sense. Total sense. And they were like, they were like you know, your fans are kind of old, Mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah okay thanks <laughs> that's us right <laughs> <laughs> well you know i i think it's i think it's wonderful that they're able to to see that and and also i think it grounds them because they see they see you at home just being their mom before they see that and they know that you can just be a normal person like all these people you see on TV, they're just normal people. There's just nothing about them. Well, for the most part, there's always there's always crazy <laughs> divas out there. But but you, you know, like seeing you every day, being their mom, and then that first in that order, uh, I th think I think I'm no expert, but it must have some sort of grounding effect on a person. Um, and they say, oh, you know, this is all this is showbiz. Um, and so, and, well, you know what? You're exactly right. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, but no. We've talked to them a lot about, you know, how the industry is what it is. This is it. And we talked to them a lot about, like, the movie industry because my my husband is. We have a library at our home, and I <clears throat> I don't even know how to explain it. It's an old helicopter garage that we built an extension onto, which is now like the ultimate man cave of all time. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a projection screen theater and a, and a library. We have about a quarter million pieces of vinyl. It's, it's not me. It's my husband. He's the collector. Wow. And I don't know, probably 20,000 classic, classic and critically acclaimed films. Um, he's very much into owning hard copy. So our kids have seen just movies from all eras like mm -hmm. black and white you know charlie chaplin buster keaton you know Cary grant marlena dietrich to you know all of the classic films and you know critically acclaimed movies and modern movies and 
we talk to them a lot about how this movie influenced that movie. And you see this and now, oh, you see what he says there? That's a, mo- that's a reference from this movie. And, mm-hmm. you know, we try to get, instill that in them. But, yeah, my, for our kids, the first, their first experience is just as us as parents and me as a mom, you know, um, being a normal person. But I think what we've tried to do is just raise them within a, a musical culture where it's like totally normal for like long hair guys to just come over here and bring guitars and amps and for the parents to be busy for a while rehearsing material for a new album or doing this. That's just part of their life. Right. If that makes, it feels normal for them. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. But you must, you got to admit there, there's got to have been a moment where they saw you when someone came up to you and just like gushed and just said, oh my gosh, oh my God, Lee Eric, can I get your autograph? Can I do that? And they're just staring at their mom. Was There's got to be a, have been moments like that, right? <laughs> my 16-year-old daughter's off on the couch. She's smirking and shaking her head. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what happened last week. I went into Long and McQuaid here because I needed... A, a set of matching new studio headphones, Audio Technicas. So I went in to buy them, and the guy, the manager guy here, he's a lovely, lovely individual. Um, he knows who I am, and he was, they always kind of go out of their way to give me a little extra help and attention when I go there because in my, my neighborhood here, there's not a lot of rock stars that live locally. Or people that actually make real music that actually ends up with a record deal or, you know what I'm sort of saying. And, right. And um, he didn't have any of the headphones, so he called over to the other Long & McQuaid. This is a fairly sl- s- small Long & McQuaid location where I live. He called another larger Long & McQuaid location. He said, you know, da-da-da. He goes, I've got one of my most important clients here. And my daughter <laughs> turns to me and she just rolls her eyes like, please. <laughs> like, it's just like, she's like, mom, this is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think more than anything, they're embarrassed when I get recognized and people gush over me. It makes them uncomfortable because it makes me uncomfortable sometimes right. because, you know, you're like, dude, like, I'm just buying, you know, toilet paper and a head of lettuce. Can you not not leave me alone, you know? (laughs) Right, right. I I always wonder about that. Those moments are great, though. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, this this has been great. I mean, I I know uh, when I hang up, I'm going to go, oh, I forgot to ask. I should have asked. Ah, But I just wanted to, you know... uh, touch base and reconnect from two years ago and we're all kind of locked down in COVID. It seems like your lockdown is a little better than everyone else's with like thousands of movies and <laughs> a quarter million records on vinyl. That would be an oasis for me. I'd be like, what lockdown? I'm here. <laughs> well, it's funny. We've had musicians over the house that say, man, if I lived here, I would just never leave this house, right? Yeah, exactly. We are, you know what? We are very blessed, and I have to say, it's not—it's um, not like we're like uber rich millionaire people or anything. But my husband has been a, an uh, ardent collector for the past thirty-five years, and so his collection started out, you know, small, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew over the years to the point where he got 
he would like literally work to be able to buy more records and he doesn't have any other bad habits like drugs or being a you know a serious drinker which takes away from any expendable income he would like to spend so he just i don't know that's what he loves to spend his money on and um that's okay for us and we're lucky too we've got you know we live on acreage property and you know our daughter was just able to have a uh social distance camp out with seven girls in the backyard each of them pitching a different tent because we have the property to do it so it's you know it's what i miss most is just being able to hug my friends and be around people and concerts i i so miss being on stage this has been a tough summer not being able to do any shows i can't wait till the world heals and it gets back to normal and we all get to hang out again yeah, and we all get to play uh, festivals across the pond together again. That would be fantastic. I think Danko Jones, Lee Aaron would be a good combo. We got to do some shows together. I am down for that anytime. That would be so fun. Mm-hmm. 